Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. I should say, first of all, we're recording this on the last Sunday of the Championship League, so it'll be out in a couple of days' time. The European Masters will be well underway. I'm joined this week by Phil Yates. We're in Milton Keynes at the Marshall Arena. Uh, of course, where the players are going to be spending a lot of time over the next few months. And uh, we're going to go through your emails and answer a few questions you've sent us over the last few weeks that have been building up. But uh, first of all, Phil, it's been a couple of months since you've been on the podcast. I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions about things that have happened uh, of late. Of course, the main one being Ronnie O'Sullivan's sixth world title. Um, it seemed to me, I, you can sort of, if you want to rank them in terms of greatest achievements, I think taking the year off and winning it probably would be number one. But I'm not sure he's ever quite dug, it, dug in as much in a tournament, particularly obviously in the match against Mark Selby. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, some of the shot selections against Selby were completely unconventional, but because they came off, we're speaking about him in a, a very good light. I think he's played a lot better to win the World Championship in the past than he did. I was surprised that Kyron didn't play anywhere near his best in the final, and so consequently didn't really put up a great amount of resistance, particularly in the third session. But for someone in his mid-40s to win a sixth world title, absolutely wonderful achievement. Tell you what though, throughout that championship, as you know Dave, I was commentating on Eurosport as you were, and I did a few of the Ronnie O'Sullivan sessions, and there were several times when I thought he was going to lose. Mm. And in the end, there he was lifting the trophy. It was a strange old world championship. I think in many respects, even though he's the people's champion and he attracts more people through the gate than anyone else, I think he was benefiting in many respects from the crowd not being there. Look at that James Cahill match the previous year. I think one of the reasons was the crowd. A lot of them were against him because they wanted Cahill to win and he wasn't used to that. I also think when he plays in front of a very appreciative and supportive crowd, he feels a responsibility not only to win, but to play stylish, attractive snooker. And of course, all that was taken away. All he needed to do, as you say, was dig in and win. And that's what he did. And also, I think the great um, sort of strength he had was the one thing he's been marked down on, which is mental resilience. You know, that uh, semi-final with Selby, the third session, it looked like he'd kind of gone. He was 13-9 down. 
could easily have lost the last two frames and was basically out of the tournament. But he did what Selby did to him in that final 2014 dug in, somehow won those frames, and was determined to turn it around in the evening. And that almost felt like the final, that match, really, didn't it? I mean, obviously, there was a final, but it was a bit of a washout in the end. Um, day one, the table wasn't really very good. Um, yeah, I, what do you think now about the the prospect of not only seven, but maybe even eight? Because for a long time, it was looking like five was going to be his limit. He was not performing at the Crucible. Suddenly, now, everything's turned around again. You know, I was thinking about this earlier this week when Jimmy White played at the age of 58, and I was thinking, what would Ronnie O'Sullivan be like at 58? Now, obviously, he won't be anything like he is now, but I can really see him playing at top level for at least another five years. So if that is the case, if I'm correct in that assumption, winning two world championships out of the next five, entirely realistic. I agree. I think, though, you know, it's not about physical decline. Joe Johnson um, talks from experience about eyesight, and I, your eyesight does deteriorate, and that could be... If that starts to happen to Ronnie, which it might do in the next few years, that could be the start of some sort of decline. But as he said in rather blunt terms, he's going to have to decline a lot to no longer be competing. Maybe not at the top level in 10 years, but if he wanted to be, he could still be on the tour, couldn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. When Doug Mountjoy won the UK Championship in 1988 as a 46-year-old, it was a, an immense story. Now, bear in mind, Ronnie... 14, 15 months time, he's going to be 46. And if he won a tournament, UK, Masters, World, whatever, no one would be particularly surprised. I think it always is worth remembering that Stephen Hendry won the last of his seven world titles when he was 30. Yeah. We went through a time on the circuit, Dave, didn't we, when players of 35 were considered real veterans. Mm. Now, almost, they're considered youngsters, but certainly 30, 29, 28 is considered a youngster. Back in the, the 90s, 28 was considered your prime. Yeah, the thing is, it's the same players. The people who were 28 then are now in their 40s and they're still, no, they're still brilliant players. You mentioned Stephen Hendry there, of course. Uh, you covered pretty much his whole career from start to finish, all the world titles, all the great moments. He's now back. He's come back. I was, I'm interested in your take on that. Okay. Well, when you're a commentator, you're supposed to be impartial when you're a journalist as well. And I was, but inside, I was a big Hendry fan because I like the way he conducted himself. He was very dedicated, very professional. And the one thing that I warmed to, and I think it was because I was so poor when I played snooker, his temperament was absolutely phenomenal. I still make him the greatest pressure player ever. Some of the things he did, some of the shots he pulled off under extreme pressure, still right there in the memory. So when he comes back, I just hope he doesn't tarnish his legacy. Don't think he will, because his legacy is so immense. Having said that, who comes back? Who comes back? Eight years away? Presumably he's going to come back at the UK Championship, that's what he's saying. If that is the case, because of the seeding system in that particular tournament, he's going to play a very top player over the best of 11. I think it could be a real baptism of fire. What I do hope is that, with the, the help of Sightright, he comes back and plays something like his old self because if he does, it will be absolutely fantastic. I think just coming back is fantastic for the game because it's generated a lot of really positive publicity. Whether he can be a force again, I would doubt it, but I would love to be incorrect. So objectively looking from the outside, what would be a successful comeback? It's unlikely he's going to win the. He's not going to win the World Championship again. Um, but what would be a successful comeback for Stephen Hendry? Well, I would like him to get to a level in his game where he's playing nicely, 
where he would then maybe win a World Seniors, play in the Champion of Champions, that kind of stuff. I think he could certainly win matches on the tour. I'm really surprised he didn't enter the European Masters, which is coming up, mm. because that's an open draw. He could have drawn anyone there. And maybe playing a lower-ranked player in relative anonymity would have been a lot better than playing a really top player under the glare of uh, lots of publicity, which is going to happen at the UK Championship. My feeling is, because it was a very last-minute thing, It was Barry basically said he got two days to decide and he said yes, but he maybe didn't have time to actually look into actually how the circuit really works now. I think if he had done, I think he possibly would have entered that. I hope he plays in the home nations as well, because I said this last week, he needs match practice. If you're going to be anywhere close to as sharp as the players who are playing week in, week out, you've got to play competitively. So we'll see if he's, uh, if he's in those. Of course, the Scottish Open is for the Stephen Hendry Trophy, so hopefully he'll be in that. Whether it'll be in Scotland, we, we don't know, which I guess brings us to where we are now. Milton Keynes is uh, going to be hosting a lot of snooker in coming weeks. We should mention, of course, Anthony Hamilton um, withdrew from the World Championship because he was worried about a crowd. He's withdrawn from the Championship League because he's concerned that there's no testing. We're in um, quite an advantageous position because we're here. We've seen it. Um, we're not commenting from afar. We're actually part of this uh, event. And he did an interview with Phil Hay from the Metro Online, who does a lot of brilliant interviews with, with various players, not just the obvious ones. But Anthony, very honest, very direct, will say what he thinks. He's got asthma, which is part of the reason that he is sort of shielding at home and, and being very careful because, as we know, the cases are going up in the UK at the moment. Um, I mentioned this before. He had a friend who's in his 30s who was very, very ill with the coronavirus and is still struggling with, with breathing and so on. So he's seen it firsthand, and I think you have to respect that he is concerned about his health. However, having said that, I think, actually, in some ways, he would have been safer at this event than at the European Masters, purely because there's far fewer people here how many people do we see a day? 20 or 30 at the very most. European Masters, because it's one to eight at the venue, all the referees, everyone backstage. going to be like 100 people here a day. They are testing, but they're not quarantining. So you get tested. Do you find out your results later, but you're not in, as it was before, you're not in your room waiting. So you're going to be amongst people. Um, I'm not criticising Anthony, but people reading that thinking, oh, they're being um, irresponsible at Championship League. That's just not true. No, absolutely not. With the Hamilton situation... I think I'm a great believer in personal choice. It's completely up to him what he wants to do. What he did at the World Championship, what he's done in the Championship League, are fine by me, completely up to him. There's a lot of trepidation now in life. And before we came here, I had a little bit of trepidation about what the situation was going to be. Because, of course, when we played the initial Championship League after lockdown and then the Tour Championship, it was quarantined, we tested, and we felt completely safe once we were inside the bubble. Now, a bubble's been created here as well, and although we haven't had testing, as you're saying, a very limited amount of people we're seeing each day. There's a perspex divide between the two commentators. Social distancing is being employed everywhere. We're not going out. I've been in this particular building, haven't left the bubble at all for eight days, won't do so until the tournament's over. And I think it really is a safe environment. Nothing's 100%, but we've got hand sanitizers. Everything is done perfectly, even little arrows to make sure that we don't go into areas where we might be in a, a congested kind of situation. So, yet yeah, for me, it's a really safe environment. And when I come back for the next eight days of Championship League, the week after next, I'll feel perfectly safe. But I didn't know what to expect before I came here. And maybe that influenced Anthony's decision. Get temperature tests as well, which is uh, obviously if you have a high temperature, that's uh, that's one of the symptoms. Um, yeah, and I think also you know there was a sort of suggestion that um, 
these events are being put on to make money, they're probably losing money. The Championship League won't be making any money. Um, people who are making money are the players, actually. Um, it's an opportunity to play. It's not a perfect situation, but the idea that World Snooker and Matchroom have been reckless is, I think, is inaccurate. I mean, at the Crucible, they actually had someone from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport there observing the protocols, and she was so impressed, she actually tried to intercede on their behalf when the, the uh, restrictions came on on the first day. She actually said, look, they're doing a great job here. Um, so look, I've dished out and you've dished out criticism to the governing body over the years, I would say many times correctly, but what they've done this year, and I've been to all but one of the bubble events, I wasn't at the Crucible, but I've been to all the others, what I've seen, they are being very responsible. They need a bit of luck as well. Obviously, if someone turns up and fails a test, then that's, that's a problem um, to be dealt with. Thankfully, so far, that hasn't happened. But I think from what I've observed just being here, I think that they've been as safe as they can be and you know they've got the events on. However, Anthony has his own personal situation, which I think you have to respect. So that's what I think about that. He is playing in the European Masters. Uh, it'd be good to see him again. Right, now, I've had some emails, um, and I'm just going to go through them one by one. Apologies if I miss any. We do get quite a few, actually. Um, Joe Richards writes, this is about the seeding structure. I've thought this for a while, and the draw for the European Masters has brought this up again. The previous tournament winner being seeded one, i.e. the defending champion, is a flawed idea. Similarly, the world champion being seeded two. The world number one and world number two being in the same half of the draw, Ronnie and Judd in this case, ruins the spectacle of the best two players meeting in the final. And player, a player can win a one-off tournament by having a good tournament. It doesn't mean they should be seeded one for the following year. They could have been out of four for the next year, and it distorts the seeding format for the tournament. The seeding should be quite, quite should quite simply be based on world rankings. It makes sense, just like it does with tennis. We're going to see a lot of scenarios where, by the semi-final, is effectively the final, and the final is potentially an anticlimax. Interesting topic of discussion, which I never discussed very often at all. Even if it is tradition, world snooker needs to follow suit of other sports and have a good think about this. Joe describes himself as a snooker geek from Cardiff. Let me pick up that hot potato, Phil, and throw it away. Joe's right. <laughs> Joe is absolutely right. Why is the world champion the number one seed? The open golf champion isn't necessarily the world number one, is he, or the Masters champion. Same with Wimbledon champion in, in tennis. Obviously, they're all top players. And if the seedings work out, you're still going to get good semi-finals. I think it does provide the association with a fail-safe. And it came into play in 2006 when Sean Murphy won the World Championship in 2005. He didn't get into the top 16 as a result. Now, obviously, you want him at the invitation events, particularly the Masters. And so by making him number one seed for ranking events, I suppose, then you say, well, he's got to be in the Masters. The other thing I think is wrong with the European Masters, and I would say this is the same with the Home Nations events, why is it an open draw? Okay, we shouldn't have a, a structured, rigidly structured seeding draw, that's the, the old-fashioned stuff, but certainly divide the top 64 from the rest. I mean, some of the draws in the first round of the European Masters, Sean Murphy against Liang Wenbo, John Higgins against Martin Gould, and then you've got players, literally, who are rookies, who are playing each other? Yeah, I think I think everyone. I think the top thirty-two are kept apart, aren't they? And I think then anyone can play anyone outside of that. I would defend it if um, they were television matches. So Murphy, Liang Wenbo, Higgins, Gould. If that, they were on TV, you could say, okay, well they're providing great matches from the start. They're not actually on telly, so that that is not happening. It's going to be the usual people, Ronnie and Judd and, and Selby and so on. Um, 
there's a counter argument that is um, surely you know the best player will win the tournament, and does it should it matter who they play along the way? Yeah, I suppose that's that's correct. And obviously, if you're the world champion, you're going to be playing some really good snooker, and you're a top player. But I think number one seed, mm, uh, where do you put him though? That's the point. Do you make him number five seed or whatever? I think it's a real. Well, I guess like what Joe's saying is just just do it off the rankings. The only problem with that, I guess, is that every draw then kind of becomes the same, doesn't it, for every tournament? You know, the world number one is always going to be seeded one, number two is always going to be seeded two, and you're in danger of just a lot of repetition, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, well, obviously, we were we were incorrect. They were saying about the world champion being number one seed. The world champion can never be lower than second. Never, never yeah. be number. Yeah, never been lower than second. And obviously, the defending champion is number one seed. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, in the semi-finals, it would be very nice to think that yeah, Trump and O'Sullivan are in two different halves and they've got a chance to meet in every final. I think the bigger issue with the rankings is I really do think that if you've got up there, if you're in the 16 or the 32 or the 64 even, I think you do deserve more reward than maybe you're getting at the moment. Yeah, and it's worth saying, of course, every player who's ever played has started at the bottom. All the great players started in round one of, of whatever system, there's been lots, and they're at the top because they're the best players. Some people see it as protection, and I think in times gone past it has been, but like you say, another way of looking at it is reward. For example, getting seeded to the Crucible is quite right. The top 16 players in the world get put there as a, as a right. What I like, though, Joe, thinking about it, that's a, it's a niche point, and I think it's a, a perfectly valid question, definitely. Well, niche is what we do here, so that's, uh, that's good to know. Dr. Tim Sandal writes, I have a question slightly convoluted for the excellent podcast. It's one where I think I know, it's one where I think I know it's more a question of when. I'm not sure I've even read that sentence right, but anyway, we'll, we'll proceed. With 147 breaks, I think the first recorded was in 1934. Most books attribute this to New Zealand and Mert O'Donoghue. In terms of official breaks, in snooker books up to the early 90s, including books by Clive, First 147 break is listed as Joe Davis, 1955, followed by Rex Williams, 1965. Both were made in exhibitions, albeit with qualified referees, verified pockets and an audience. These breaks continued to be listed as official throughout the 1980s, following Steve Davis's 1982 Larder Classic one, the Thorburn, Stephen ones and so on and so on, until sometime in the 1990s. I imagine the breaks were removed from the list because they were not made in tournaments. However, do you know when the Davis and Williams ones were declassified and who made the decision? On a related point, with John Spencer's 147 and the 1979 Hol Holston Lager event, which was the first made in professional tournament, some books say it wasn't recognised that the pockets were oversized. However, popping up into my loft and flicking through an edition of Snooker Scene at the time, it stated that the table was dismantled before the pockets could be measured. Do you know which is correct? Also, should Spencer's break be better recognised? It was the first in tournament play. Davis's was the first to be televised. Ironically, again, Spencer, keep up the good work with the excellent podcasts. Well, that's breaking news to me, the fact that it was dismantled before they measured them. Um, because in sort of popular um, folklore, if you like, that's the reason it didn't count, because the pockets were, were too big. Yeah, I wasn't there, and of course, I didn't see it on TV, no one did. <laughs> if you don't know the story, basically, it was a televised tournament, but the camera crew, heavily unionised at the time, had to take their break. So they went down to the local McDonald's, mm. and that was when Spencer made his 147. So it wasn't seen. It was a great shame. Yes, that was the first 147 in tournament play. It will always remain so. The list we use, and after Ryan Day's 147 this week, it's now up to 158, is purely and simply 147s in tournament play with templated pockets. 
the fact that the, the Spencer table might not have been templated, might have disqualified it. Since the Spencer break, I can well recall there have been a few 147s in pro events, smaller events, where no templated pockets, and so consequently, the 147s haven't been included. I think, if my memory serves me correct, Joe Swale made one many, many moons ago. So, yeah, so our list is purely and simply professional tournaments, templated pockets. Because the templates have changed over the years, but I guess you have to go on what they are at the current time, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I was there when they changed the pocket sizes, or the pocket shapes. It was at Trenton Gardens, Stoke, the qualifiers, and I well recall I had to walk through the practice room to get to the media room. It was at the start of my career, maybe a year or two in, maybe three. So I'm walking through this practice room, and there at the far end on the far table is Terry Griffiths, someone who I hold in the, the highest regard then and very much so now. So he said, look at this, and he's playing shots down the, the top cushion. And they were either wobbling or just about going, even though they looked very, very accurate. I think it was in 91, anyway. Look at this, and we couldn't believe how tight the pockets were, and it turned out they'd made the decision to tighten up the pockets, the WPBSA, and basically it hadn't told anyone. Mm. Now, can you imagine the RNA mm. saying, well, we're gonna make the hole smaller, but we won't tell any players, <laughs> we'll just do it. It was extraordinary, and immediately after that happened, everyone was saying, cool, you know, these tables are tight, it was the old BCEs then. Mm. And that's when they changed from the, the 80s, where they were more generous than they are now, to more approximating what we have these days. Just a, a word on John Spencer's 147, um, as you say, it wasn't televised, but Joe Johnson told me he was in the audience, and he said Spencer, um, after potting the, the pink, as he was sort of lining up the last black, did a sort of mock faint on the table, um, which seems extraordinary, really, because it was a big moment, even though it wasn't televised. But um, they were different times, obviously. How do we make 147 special now? I mean, they are still special to the players who do it. Um, the big cash prizes have gone. This million-pound thing isn't happening this year. didn't really work last year. Um, Higgins is at the Crucible was, because it was the Crucible, the first time he'd done it. But is there a way of making them kind of more special, or are we just sort of used to so many of them? Well, the next leap, well, there's two, actually. One is a 148 or above, but that's got to happen with a free ball with 15 reds on the table. Now, you've commentated on <laughs> hundreds of frames, Dave. How often does it happen? So mm. the chances of that occurring in any professional match are small. In a TV match, even smaller. So that's something that we can only hope for. I think the next leap would be for someone to make two yeah. uh, in the same professional event. Now, we've seen it in the Championship League with Mark Davis, but if it was on TV over a week maybe and someone did it twice, both times in front of the camera, that would be the next leap. Or if we had two 147s in the same match from two different players. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, it could happen, I think, as well. Jason Walker writes, hi guys, great pod. I've got a question. We know that a snooker table measures 12 by 6 foot, but is there a regulation height they have to be from the floor? I ask because of a man of, shall we say, restricted height and unrestricted width, i.e. short and fat. <laughs> I have issues reaching many shots, but some tables I play on, this is less of an issue than they, as they seem to be lower from the floor. I don't know. What's the answer to that? I don't know. <laughs> what I do know is I sympathise because I'm exactly the same. If I were to be playing now, I think I'd need the rest to break off with. That's how, uh, that's how big I've become. Well, I'm sure, I mean, you may not be in the position because it costs a lot of money. You could probably get one custom made 
if you if you set them your requirements. Walking into a club would be different because they tend to be standard. But if you had the money to, to buy a table and house it somewhere, you could probably get it custom made to of a certain height. Yeah, I mean, all I can say is my experiences playing amateur and league snooker in the West Midlands in the 1980s. There was a pram at the Masters Club in your hometown in Walsall, and the one table there, if you're at the black end, it was so high you couldn't believe. It was extraordinary. Conversely, and I actually mentioned this in a commentary earlier this week, when I used to play in the Hales Owen League, Hales Owen Athletic, which was a cycling track and tennis courts and all that kind of stuff and athletics track, in their clubhouse, we went in initially the first time I ever played there, and it was just a bar, and then there was like a ballroom. Where's the table? And they wheeled the table in and sort of moored it down on the, on the dance floor. And the reason I mentioned it this week is because someone was slipping over on the carpet, and that's what we were doing, slipping over on the dance floor. But that table was remarkably low. So if there are rules, I think maybe the table at the Masters Club in Warsaw and that one might have contravened it, but I honestly don't know the answer. Well, I seem to remember in Southport, the Players' Championship, John Higgins complained that he was playing Dotty, I think, and he said the table was too high, I think. He came and actually said that. Now, whether it was or not, I don't know. Maybe that was his perception. But anyway, that, I think that's the answer. If you've got the money... <laughs> and, and somewhere to put the table, which may be more of an issue, you could probably get it made to, to your uh, specifications. Mark Hayden, he wrote in last week, he works for the Lawn Tennis Association, he said, firstly, thanks for take, talking about my idea on cloth speeds last week. When you were mentioning all the different tournaments, I'm sure I remember one in the mid-80s when I was a nipper, where they played two frames but kept a total score from both, i.e. the score rolled over to frame two. I feel it was short-lived and probably didn't produce a lot of close finishes, but do you, or Michael, or anyone remember it? I'm sure it's televised. Love it if I could shed some light. I think they did it in this... Was it the Australian Masters they played aggregate frame scores? Well, of course, a tournament we've just been talking about, the once, uh, John Spencer 147, mm. that was aggregate scores. Right. And, of course, once he'd made the 147, the actual frame that was televised, I think it was against Cliff Thorburn, was immaterial. He'd mm. already won the match. Yeah, aggregate scores, you can... The problem with aggregate scores is you bring in the problem you have with billiards, where you can have real massive runaways where the last frame or the second last frame or whatever becomes completely academic irrelevant. And also, if someone makes like 100 exactly and there's like last red and the colours on, the other guy's going to come and pop them, isn't he, or try to, because it's going to count towards... The, the natural drama of a frame goes away. They, I think it was the Australian Masters they did it in, the, the Winfield Australian Masters in yeah. the 80s, but I don't think it's ever really going to catch on, is it? No, absolutely not, no. Purely and simply because... it. it decreases the chances of drama as you say you've still got the chance of drama and I suppose if you played over three frames aggregate and it came down to the last black that would be great but your chances of getting to that situation are reduced Sachinda here writes hello guys thanks for a brilliant podcast can I suggest a topic to discuss the return of big break it was a definite watch in the 90s I hate to say this but Jim Davison was a good presenter but his inane ramblings in recent years means he will be totally unsuitable now Maybe Jason Mohammed and Alan McManus could be a winning combination. Well, for those who are not from the UK or just too young, Big Break was a very popular game show. Jim Davison and John Virgo ran for many years in the 90s. And it was good for snooker because it got snooker players on. It got the game maybe to a different audience, a light entertainment audience. Um, I've not heard any uh, suggestion it's going to come back. Um, you've mentioned a couple of people there. I'll tell you who I think I'd be, who would be good hosting, actually. Andy Goldstein. Um, Andy presents the home nations for Eurosport. Big snooker fan, got the sort of personality for it. In terms of a player, what about Alan Taylor? 
Alan Taylor does his impressions, doesn't he? He'd be, he'd be good value, and okay, he's not as big a name as Virgo was then, but he'd become one. And he's a player. Yeah. He played very, very well in the qualifiers for the World Championship, so why not? Yeah. I actually was on a pilot show in the 80s, just before I started in snooker journalism, for a possible snooker quiz show uh, that was being produced by Central. It was just the pilot. It went very, very well, but the, the series never occurred. I think they're great for the game. I really, really do. I remember once I was staying up in Preston at a, a guest house, and uh, it was quite early in the morning, and of course, snooker people, snooker journalists are nocturnal, and so I was lying in. Maybe just after nine o'clock, all of a sudden there's a, a knock on the door, and it was the, the chambermaid, and she said, uh, hello there, she said, are you with the snooker? I went, I'm still in bed, I said, yeah, 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 I am, yeah, she said, oh, I just thought I'd say, my, my husband's just been on big break, yeah. off she went. You know, it really was in the, the sporting consciousness, wasn't it? Mm. You know, um, I think anything like that, whether you like the show or you don't like it, I think if you're a snooker fan, it's got to be good for the game. Yeah, and it was kind of, uh, I don't mean this as an insult at all, it was kind of undemanding fair. It was a quiz show, the questions weren't very hard, it was a bit of fun, and there's nothing wrong with that. And yeah, it got snooker, like I say, to a different audience on BBC One primetime on a Saturday night. So if it were to come back, what I, we, I, we did sort of say this, me and Michael, though, the, the, the only danger is when you reinvent a show, you take away what's good about it. And you know what it's like these days, they would try and be as different as possible and maybe a bit ironic and a bit sort of sideways looking at it and in, if that's the case don't bother if you're going to do it just do it properly um, anyway we move on I think this is the last email this is from Matt Tarrant he says I've always loved snooker but not always had the time to watch and play as much as I'd like due to lockdown and holidaying in the UK this summer I had two weeks to watch most of the world championships a luxury I haven't had since I was in my teens being born in 1967 my teens were in the 80s and like many I was transfixed by all things snooker after the semis, I'm now a fan of the Tartan Nugget. That's Anthony McGill. Well, he has the Smiths' walk on music. Class. My interest rekindled. I picked up Hendry's book and found your podcast. Just ordered Clive's book thanks to your recommendation. Can't wait to get stuck into that. But let me get to my main point. I have and have had many of my favourite players. Hendry, Mark Williams, Stevens Bond, he's a Derby lad like me. Ding and, of course, Silvina Francisco, who won in my hometown. Assembly rooms in the 1985 Jewish British Open against Kirk Stevens after previously knocking out Jimmy and Alex. Wondering if these three were partying together down Sadler Gate, thus contributing to the South Africans' win. Well, every possibility. Uh, he says, but us fans choose our favourite players by chance because we sided with them in a tight match or because of flair or perceived charisma. You guys get to know the players and their characters. I'd guess that your favourite players are the ones you like as people. So without naming and criticising those who have huge egos, are uncharitable or just unpleasant, who would you say are the nicest blokes in snooker? The players about whom nobody has a bad word, the players that make you smile when you meet them. Just a couple of names to help us out. I've heard it said that Terry Griffiths could fit the bill. Matt then goes on to talk about a play he doesn't particularly like, but we'll 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 stay positive. Um, I'm not going to start naming names, as he said, because then you leave people out and people think, oh, they must be horrible. I think, in a, on a general point, we're very lucky in snooker that the players are down to earth. Uh, we've just literally come from breakfast. We were sat with Mark Selby, Michael Holt, just having a laugh about things. I don't imagine in the tennis world the journalist would be sat with Roger Federer and he would be accepting of just sort of general nonsense chat, which is, which is all it was, just a bit of fun. So I think that's good. Even the stars don't really act like stars. And I can honestly say, like, I mean, you've been at it longer than me, but have very few problems with players, really. Um, they're approachable in the main. They understand that they're in quite a fortunate position to be doing what they're doing. And they're just ordinary guys, aren't they? Absolutely. So at any one time, you've got 128 players on the circuit. Now, in any walk of life, 
Out of 128 people, you're going to get some absolute diamonds and you're going to get some people who you don't particularly care for. But the number of people over the years I didn't like, very, very small, very, very small. They're a great bunch to be with. And as you say, no edge, no ego. Obviously, there's a certain amount of ego and, and why not? They're top world-class sportsmen. But generally speaking, they're very approachable and we build up really good relationships with them. Um, talking about nice guys, yeah, you're right about Terry Griffiths. The thing I loved about him, he offered so much help to young players. He was always there, you know, to, to listen to, to, to listen. Um, great coach, great guy, great sense of humour as well. Sometimes the really outgoing, humorous players on the table aren't like that mm. off the table, and the ones who are grim and <laughs> determined on the table are very funny off it. Mm. Mark Selby being a, a classic example, Stephen Hendry as well, great company off the table, but when he was playing, it was all business. So yeah, I mean, we've been really lucky in that regard. I've been doing this now for 32 years, and I've made so many friends amongst the players. Sometimes you've got to rein yourself in when you're commentating, because it's only human nature if you've got a, a friend in one corner and someone you don't know or someone you don't particularly like in the other. But yeah, the vast majority of them are really good fellows. Mark Selby, what a smashing bloke. But you could go down the list as well. Well, I, I said I wasn't going to name names. I'm going to name one who I think fits the bill when he says you don't hear a bad word about Ken Doherty. Now, Ken's a bit like Terry. You know, he's been world champion. He's been at the very top of the game. He's had his, you know, decline as well. Um but has been a great ambassador for snooker. He's been a great ambassador for Ireland. He's a huge star out there. You know, very popular media personality now. Of course, he's got the wild card as well to continue, which is good news on the tour. Um, whenever I was uh, going back a few years when I was writing for Irish papers, you know, sometimes he'd win, sometimes he'd, lo he'd lose, but he'd always give you his time regardless after a match. Just very classy, I think. And I was, I was asked to help him write his autobiography, so I got to spend a bit of time with him in, in Ireland and just realised what a big star he was out there. I mean, literally, we were going down a street in his car and he was stopping, like, every couple of minutes to say hello to someone. How's your mother? Say hello to so-and-so, your brother and all this. Knew everyone there. And I get the feeling... I mean, he came from quite humble beginnings, actually. I get the feeling he is really grateful to Snooker and, and he's sort of... He's paid that forward, I think. We're lucky as well, Dave, aren't we? We do ITV, which we are very proud to do because we think it's a, a great product. And our commentators there... They're fantastic commentators, that's the most important thing, but also just really good people to be around. Alan McManus, Neil Foles and Stephen Hendry. Terrific. Yeah, I think, like I say, in snooker, because the players have sort of come from just ordinary backgrounds in the main, they tend to be ordinary people, and the money is not so, like in golf, tennis and these sort of sports, it's not got so ridiculous that they shut themselves off from the public. They're still effectively just normal people just doing a job that happens to be on the TV um, but they, they are in, by and large normal people like you say there's always going to be people you don't agree with and maybe you just don't connect with but in the main I think we're lucky that we have you know the players that we have and that they of course also provide the entertainment they do so on that upbeat note we're going to end thank you Phil you can email us snookerscenepodcast at mail.com that's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com we will return next week Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. 
life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.